Hey everybody, it's Josh Cabot from Team Vintage Sand with a little prelude to our seventh episode, The Other Side of the Windbags. Uh, we just wanted to apologize a little bit in advance for uh, a couple of audio glitches along the way, and we tried to fix them as best we could, and then we thought, well, since this is about Orson Welles, who always seemed to have trouble with, th- with his sound, we thought it'd be wonderfully appropriate if we left some of it as it was. So in this episode, John, Mike, and I talk about Welles' career, especially in light of the quote-unquote new Netflix film, The Other Side of the Wind, his final work that has just premiered this past month. So thanks for listening. Sit back and enjoy. Uh, Check us out on our website, www.vintagesand.com. Leave us feedback. We've already gotten a couple of fan letters, so we're really excited about that. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Episode 7. We've made it to Episode 7 of Vintage Sand. Uh, the film history podcast done by film nerds, lovable film nerds, I have to say, who claim no expertise, as I've said many times, but just a, a passion for film. And boy, was our passion stoked last last month when uh, Netflix showed uh, in whatever its most complete form it'll ever be, Orson Welles' last work, uh, The Other Side of the Wind. And so, in honor of that, episode seven is called The Other Side of the Windbags, and our, which I think is a good title. And our <laughs> <laughs> works for me. And the and our subject is book. your point that we're windbags, or uh, that yes. well has been turned into a windbag. Well, no, I think it's us. I was being I was being self deprecating there, but uh, all right, I'll accept right. that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. we'll live with that. Um, but it is uh, Orson Welles is our subject, and Welles is someone we've barely touched on, um, except in the last episode on openings, of course, Touch of Evil came up in Citizen Kane as well. So we'll be talking about the film itself, and we'll be talking about its place in the Wells canon, how it fits in, and, you know, it got very good reviews. Manola Dargis, for example, in the Times, loved it. I know, loved I know, I don't, almost, I don't uh, understand. David Edelson, I think, also liked yeah, it, New um, York Magazine. Um, most, not, most of the reviews were very, very positive. There were a few reviews I read that said, only if... You are a Wells fan and, and, and yes. want to, you know, see what he did and how it relates to his other work uh, and would not recommend it to other people. There are a few very negative reviews I read that I agreed with. I'd say it's probably the best film ever that was co-written by Oya Kodar. <laughs> Would you say I'm, that? I'm definitely. I was when I saw that I was thinking that I was thinking that having Oya Kodar co-write the, and she seems like a lovely person and she, you know a I really good would keeper like to of know his what plane. her contribution yeah, was exactly. besides her ass. It would be right. It would be like Susie Kane, you know, co-editing the uh, the Inquirer. You know, <laughs> just like Charlie, <laughs> just can't see it happening. So, um, but yeah, she did make some. Her contributions to the film were. Palpable, let's just say that. Um, but yeah, definitely the best co-written Oya Kodar film. But before we get to Wells, we cannot get to the man without touching on the loss over the last few days of two of our, our auteur director heroes. Uh, Nick Rogue passed away two days ago, and the great Bernardo Bertolucci, who passed away, I think, this morning or last night. And uh, just quick thoughts on, on those two. Let's start with Rogue, because I think we'll have more to say about Bertolucci. I am not a big fan of Rogue. I probably should maybe rewatch some of those movies. Don't I love Don't Look Now. 
And I love and I love Walkabout is beautiful. I know it's sophomoric, but it's it's really and performance is really good. Performance I like. Right? That is an interesting movie. Interesting yeah. movie. And Although he did not direct that by himself. He, he co-directed, co-directed that. Yeah, with Donald yeah. Cannell. Um and I you know, I I thought that was a really good mixture of sixties, late sixties vibe with sort of traditional gangster picture. Thought that was well done, and um, I like the man who fell to earth. I love the, the idea of the man who fell to earth. And yes, I I, I think some of it's beautiful. And doesn't all. But and quite Bowie work. is is stunning, you know, just physically and otherwise, and is up to the acting challenge. But it just kind of did he? It's sort of a cult movie, you know what? Yeah. Did he direct that Art Garfunkel? Yes, Bad Timing. That was an interesting film. Interesting yeah. film. That was his last sort of great one. Although some people like Insignificance, the one he made with Teresa Russell. Yes. Playing yeah, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, was, that I thought it was an interesting mess. Yeah. Yeah. Where is Teresa Russell anyway? We could use she her. She pops up in. A, she popped up in an indie indie movie, a real nice. small one, that a friend of mine had another movie at that same festival, and, and I was the only person who. Well, and of course she was Mrs. Rogue for for twenty yeah. years, so that's but um, you can try to see them on as big a screen as possible. Um, uh, Don't look now, which is based on the Daphne du Maurier story about a couple who go to Venice to sort of forget the loss of their five-year-old daughter and mysterious things ensue. And Walkabout, which is definitely a big screen film because the Outback just looks. Although Picnic at Hanging Rock does the same the kind Did of thing. No no, 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 I'm saying no, no, that no, Weird, yeah. Weird does the Outback, yeah. you know, better as an Australian kind of makes sense. I liked Picnic and Hanging Rock. Yes, a lot. beautiful. And and how about Bertolucci? That's a that's a. That's I love a big The one. Conformist. I think I think The Conformist is a great movie. Yeah, but and Michael, I, you were voicing the objection. No, that but a lot I do like people, The Conformist. But it, but your objection to it is very well taken. About it, well, I, I don't object to The Conformist as much as his later films, where. where uh, specifically, The Last Emperor, um, The Dreamers, and the other one, The Summer. Sheltering Sky. No, I no. never saw Sheltering Sky. Sheltering Sky was Sheltering beautiful. Sky oh, was I know beautiful. what you mean, the one with Dondi Newton. No, uh, not no? that one. The one uh, with Jeremy Irons. It was like a summer... Um, it was like a summer... Uh, porn film almost. Oh, I know what you're uh, uh, What's her name? Liv Tyler was the lead. And Jeremy Irons was playing. Yeah. It all Takes took place, place in Italy, Italy yeah. in the summer. And that and too. And he's dying of AIDS. And he's, I don't know if he's dying of AIDS. I thought that was what cancer. It was. Maybe. But I mean, uh, there was like a gay relationship in that, but the way he edited it, you couldn't tell. And it was like, why are you doing this? And in The Dreamers, he cuts out a whole. A whole scene from the book that make, uh, making the film making that makes no sense. Um, I like the Dreamers because it was one of the better films from the outside to look at the French New Wave and the Generation mm-hmm. of '68. And but, um, but some the, of his films are a mess. I'm sorry, the, 1900. I, no becento. I hated it. I'm sorry. I'd it's rather a mess. watch The Leopard, and I don't yeah, like Visconti. So, 19, 1900 is one of those movies that I really, really wanted to see. I just I love the idea, the whole the conceit of it, but it just doesn't It's work. a mess. Yeah. It's a dead herring in the moonlight, as it's, Wilder would say. And uh, I feel less inclined towards Last Tango in Paris yeah, than I first saw it. I still think it's Brando's last Oh he's he Brando is 
is great. Great, and, it, and it's his last performance where he did more than pick up a paycheck. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And it did great for the butter industry. They first saw it, like, just couldn't follow what was going on. All right, so filmies out there, if you want to catch up on Nick Rogue, our one film to recommend is Don't Look Now. And if you want to catch up on Bertolucci, our film is definitely The Conformist. So there's some really good work in there as well. All right. To the task at hand and the other side of the wind. Um, we made it through. Yes. I've got to be honest. I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm thinking, this is, this is supposed to be a really good movie, and I don't like it. And I have to come up with arguments, because I figured you two would like it. No. And uh, at, yeah. at one point, I looked over at John, and his eyes I was were dozing. closed. I was dozing off. And I was like, yeah, so oh, thank off. God. It's yeah. not yeah. just me. I was dozing off, too. I... Um, yeah. What can I say? It's my, my, my first reaction was just, was sadness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a quote that I, uh, that I remember. And you guys know I'm an insane Beatles fan. And there's a quote that I remember um, referring to Let It Be because the last be- a- album the Beatles made together was Abbey Road. And then when they released Let It Be after it had been doctored and torn apart and ripped apart, um, the critic from New Musical Express, yeah, no, the no, the the album mm-hmm. called it. If the, said if the Beatles soundtrack is to be their last, then it will stand as a cheapskate epitaph, a cardboard tombstone, mm-hmm. a sad and tatty end to a musical fusion which wiped clean and drew again the face of pop. And to me, that's what this movie is with Wells. Although if, I think Let It Be happens to be a very good album. <laughs> yeah, well, but, it but it's not theirs. And, you know, it was mangled by other hands, especially Phil Spector and McCartney always objected to mm. the gloppy strings on Let It Be and on Long and Winding Road. And so yeah. we don't know how much Wells would have, how different Wells' version of this would it be, would have been had he been allowed to finish it. But yeah. it's a cardboard tombstone to... to yeah. One of the great, if not the great, career in, in American film direction. So let's start there. I mean, there's there's some there's a couple of good things. I mean, uh, well, it was it was. I like the sh- I like the Shakespeare. I like you know that that the Hannaford character who's but for those of you who haven't seen the film yet and it, don't. I'm really not recommending it unless, as John said, you are a Wells completist or a glutton for punishment or both. Those two usually, usually, usually Venn diagram each other. Um, that uh, it's about the 70th birthday party, the last night in the life of a film director very much like Wells, a guy named Jake Hannaford, played by John Huston, his good friend. Um, and uh, it is intercut with scenes from the film that Hannaford is in the process of making, although the money's run out, which is typical for Wells, called The Other Side of the Wind. So the film within a film gives, uh, gives the movie its title. And he's and, screening what he's done so far at his 70th mm-hmm. birthday Right, and then, we, and then it ends up in a drive-in with all the cars driving away. I mean, that was a, yeah. that was, I thought that was a lovely metaphor for, you know, the audience is literally up and gone. Forget about it. But... Um, you know, it, it begins with death, you know, like like your Rosebud moment yeah. and several Wells films that begin with death. Um, as I said, I like the Shakespeare stuff. In the end, he says, you know, the quotes from Tempest, which was Shakespeare's, you know, ostensibly right. Shakespeare's farewell to the stage. Our revels now are ended. And this rough magic I now abjure. And they sort of hang on the word abjure for a little bit. Um, be, you know, as a, as a Tempest person, I would say there's my one of my favorite quotes in, in The Tempest is uh, this, uh, Prospero talking about Caliban says, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. And I wonder if Wells 
seeing this would acknowledge it as his. I don't know. Or is it it's just hard. crap? Well, <laughs> that's possible. Too. Well, I I have a feeling that the only movie of his that he really felt no, I take that back because Kane he was satisfied with, but there is a quote as far as uh, from Chimes at, about Chimes oh, at God, Midnight. I just watched that again because I, I was teaching well, Henry the Henry plays to he, my classes. He Loved said, it. He said about Chimes at Midnight. He said, "If I wanted to get into heaven." No, it's it's my favorite picture. If I wanted to get into heaven on the basis of one movie, that's the one I would offer up. Well, you know, he was playing Falstaff. The first time he played Falstaff on stage, he was twenty four. Yeah, yeah. And you know, in Five Kings, and and he was only I had to keep reminding myself. Times of Midnight was shot in what sixty four, sixty five. Yeah, he was yeah. barely fifty. Yeah, and he looks well. I mean, some of his makeup, some of it is the fact that he. I mean, Did not lay off the candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, you're a mess. You're a Honey, you're a mess, yes. And we even got a faux Marlena Dietrich in the film with Lily Palmer's character, who's clearly supposed to be Dietrich mm, and is a rather mm. poor substitute uh, for the lady herself. Um, Peter Bogdanovich never ceases to stun me with how obnoxious he is. <laughs> he is probably the worst director to be an actor. I mean, I thought he was dreadful in The Sopranos. I, 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 Tarantino, I think, is... Tarantino got a little better. Tarantino <laughs> got a little better. Yeah. I mean, credit to him for sort of seeing, once the money came through and the rights issues got uh, got settled, it was Bogdanovich who sort of helmed the project. And, you know, although he said he doesn't love how he appears in the film, which is very good, very apt on his part. Because the relationship between Wells and Bogdanovich was such a hate-love thing you know he calls him yeah. so he calls all the other directors in the film he calls all the other directors who imitate the jake hannaford character the wells character disciples but he's an apostle you just right. want you just want right. to smack him yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were talking about this last time about his first four films about targets about last picture show about what's up doc and paper moon and then it it, it not only goes downhill it it explodes in, 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 in flames. I mean, he did some of the most horrifyingly bad pictures of the 70s. At well, Long Last Love, anybody? Believe it or not, there's a, uh, there, I think Richard Brody in The New Yorker recently made a case for that movie. At, At Long, Long Last, Last Love. Love. Wow, okay. Yeah, I didn't read it because I remember that movie was such horror. <laughs> oh, my God. And, but, you know, and of course the story was that... Uh, that he, you know, Polly Platt, his editor, right. he was married to, right. and then right. on the set of Daisy Miller, he dumped her for Civil Shepherd. Yeah. And then, as soon as he lost her as his... Which is an awful movie. Oh, God. Daisy Miller. Oh, Daisy Miller. Oh. Possibly one of the worst Henry James adaptations. Or, or I'd go even bigger. I'd say one of the worst literary adaptations yeah. ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know... The fact that Polly Platt may have been the brains behind the app. I mean, let's give Bogdanovich his due. He was the first American critic to really write a single volume about a single director. It's when he was working for Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. I mean, so we got it. We got to give him credit there. He didn't invent it. That was the French. But I, I would say I don't think all of Bogdanovich's post paper movies are bad. I actually like. The I like Mask. I never saw Mask. Yeah, Mask was okay. But I like uh, the sequel to The Last Picture Show. Yes, that's, Texasville. Texasville. That's, that's a good movie. Yeah. yeah. It's a good movie. Not as good as The Last Picture Show. No. No. But, but I never was... quite understood why he didn't, after Last Picture Show, 
he didn't sort of stay in that vein and continue to yeah. try to go in that direction. He well, so many uh, he was getting crit- criticism from people like John Simon, who just said well, he was just lifting off great directors, which he was. Yeah, well, well you could say that about Paper Moon. Paper Moon's a good movie, though. Love it. I I, 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 I didn't like it as much as you guys, but that's because I'd read the book earlier, mm. and I like the. No, book. I like Paper Moon a lot. I like Paper Moon a lot. I, I like... do not like Miss O'Neill. That is one of the strangers. But he, but but uh, in other side of the wind, Bogdanovich comes off as is even more obnoxious than you'd imagine him. Brooks Otterlake, just the name of the character. You just you can't help but think that Wells was yeah, you know, definitely skewering him. And I like Susan Strasberg's part. Because you know, as we were talking about it's before, Pauline Kale, Pauline Kale, Kale had just had just come out with the Citizen Kane book, which made the case, um, ironically, that um, another New Yorker writer, in this case Mankiewicz, was the guy w- who was behind the real genius behind Kane, and that Wells's contributions were nothing. And of course, you know, as as we were saying, as good as Kale is as a writer, um, that was I, that was a dilly. That was really ridiculous. Yeah, I, I mean, really and as you said, John, from it was based on from, nothing. From everything I've read about about Kane, my theory is is that Mankiewicz basically had a script that they gave Wells the premise, the skeleton of the script, and then Wells, as they started to work, made it more and more his own. And as he has said, you know, I was the director and I did what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, I give, I give Greg, Greg Tolan more credit for. The, the and Bernard Herrmann more credit on for the brilliance of Kane than I and, would to and, Mankiewicz. And we, we, we will never know. Right. No, we'll never know. Yeah. Um, and Wells also said that he benefited from the fact that he did not do anything. Right. He didn't know and the he rules. Was, yeah. And he was lucky that he had someone like Toland who was willing to. There was no ego with Toland. He was willing to say, "Well, let's try it. Let's try it. Let's try it." And and also taught him how to use the camera. He said there were a lot of cameramen now who wouldn't do that. Yeah, it was like you know, like a secret magic thing or whatever. And he was like, "No, I'll teach you how to use the camera." And and it is fun to see you know all the people at the Hollywood party at Hannaford's seventieth birthday party are the classic Hollywood hangers on, and Wells makes a ton of fun of them. Although it's really kind of shooting fish in a barrel. I, mean, I think I think the movie really suffers in the from the fact that it was very low budget and he had such sporadic funding over six years, and it was sort of like, okay, I started it. I know I had any money. Let's go back. I gotta go get money. Then maybe a year later they shot a little more. Well, well I don't have any money. Did, well, they I, shot it for like how long before Houston was cast? Oh yeah, forever. I mean, yeah. that came out in yeah. the. Uh, but I mean, it, it's it's instructive though. I mean, you know, one of the, we made. I'd love to do an episode on the ends of directors' careers. We talked about this once before. There's, there's a book. And out. and if you if you you'd have to put Houston near the top of the list. Absolutely. And, and it's an interesting contrast to Wells, even though they were such good friends, because Wells' last films were all disasters, whereas Houston's among them were, you know, The Man Who Would Be King and Pritchie's uh, Honor. Honor and Under and, the Volcano and The and Dead. And, the dead. and apparently mean, he was wheeled onto the set in an oxygen tank when he was yeah, shooting The yeah. Dead and Pritchie's Honor, which is yeah. still, I think, one of the one of the best Hollywood satires and yeah. Abs- no, the absolutely. Best of the 80s. Yeah. Uh, but that's next episode. Yes. So <laughs> we'll go in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know. And the camera work, too, was not good. Mm. 
even even with the low budget, I, under, I understand. Yeah, I, I it was it was sort of sloppy, and I I looked up the cam the 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 cinematographer Gary Graver. Oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, yes. I mean, can anybody the name the a legend. movie that Gary Graver did? I looked at his list of credits or whatever. No, I mean, well, and it's like the this. same thing as having his girlfriend, uh, eventual wife. Um, you know, be the co-writer on the script. Yeah. I mean, my not, guess is he is because of the budget. So he yeah. was just getting who he could get. Right. He was not going to get Vittorio Storaro or uh, no. Gordon Willis to uh, no. to shoot it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it does it. So it doesn't really break new ground. I mean, there's one of my one of the most ironic lines for me in the film is uh, someone says. I forget whether it's Hannaford himself or Bogdanovich says, you know, it's okay to steal from... No, it's, it's Hannaford who says, it's okay to steal from other directors, just don't steal from yourself. And that's all this movie is, is like stealing from himself. It's it's like well, a Wells bag of tricks. Well, I, I, I keep thinking what it would have looked like if he was still alive when it was fully edited because some, yeah. of, it, some of it... Fair enough. Some of it definitely looked like the work of directors that he always said he didn't like. Right. Well, but, you know, it's in, in the scenes from the other side of the wind, the color yeah, scenes. Yeah, uh, the, the movie within the movie. Right. That's definitely, he's and he's he, poking fun at Antonioni. Especially Antonioni, which yeah. is ironic because, you know, we... point. We, uh, yeah, and, no, and also there's the scene in the movie where she goes into the club and into the bathroom and there's all kinds of sexual things going on yeah. in the bathroom yeah. and there's a, you know, a male sign and a female sign just, and, and it's, that's, and the music was like, it was oh. straight out of blow up. I mean, it was yeah. like his parody of of that, you know, swinging that London and, thing, and and Fellini. Well, oh, yeah, not, who, and, who he hated. Yeah, right. he said, you know, that Antonioni's problem is that he lingers on a scene. You know, if it's a good scene, you know, why not leave? You know, if if a woman walks onto the camera and then walks away, he leaves his ca- Antonioni will leave his camera lingering there. Yeah. You know, if it's a good scene, why not keep going? And it must, it just reminded me that, you know, it must have been what the John Fords and the other great directors of 1941 must have thought when Kane came out. And for him to make fun of Antonioni and Fellini and the, and the French New Wave directors, he just comes off as being like a cranky old man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah in fact, he, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if any directors say post-1940 that he liked yeah, I never heard him say anything I, I positive about yeah. about the newer directors. So the parody scenes say more about Wells, I think, than they say about Antonioni. Yeah. Well, apparently the character, actually I read this in a Vanity Fair article about the VIPs, the character he created, the Max Buda, is supposed to be Fellini. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it wasn't written that way at all, and he just rewrote it. And he, yeah, he, he loathed him. But and, there's and a there's a list of that I found of Wells's supposed favorite films. Okay, and they're all they're all older movies. They're all Chaplin, right? All, no, <laughs> City Lights. Okay, I was it was a good guess. Greed, Intolerance. Oh, good God! Nanook of the North. It's a Robert Flaherty documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty three. Shoeshine. Mm-hmm. Battleship Potemkin. Uh, La Femme du Bollinger by Marcel Pagnon. Which no one has seen. I know. No one watches Pagnon. No, it's 1938. Right. Grand Illusion. Okay. All older yeah. Yeah. movies. 
I mean, you know, I understand the Eisenstein. I mean, everyone who's ever edited has had to yeah. watch Potemkin. Yeah. And, you know, you see that. I mean, the uh, read somewhere on Other Side of the Wind, the average length of the shot is three seconds. I mean, he's constantly moving and cutting and cutting I know, and, moving. and I, my, my guess is that was partly due to funding, that, that, you know, they only had so much good film that they could edit. Yeah, and, and, you know, you do feel sorry for him because all these, you know, film school nerds like Scorsese and Lucas and, you know, Spielberg and Coppola and all these guys, you know, oh, I became a director yeah. when I didn't realize what a director could do until I saw Citizen Kane. And then he'd come and asking for ten bucks and they'd be like, no, yeah. no. And yeah. that's why the, the scene that's most powerful, I think, in Other Side of the Wind is when he's finally forced to ask... Bogdanovich, who plays, you know, his his apostle, as he calls it, right. who uh, who unlike him has become very successful financially, right? Um, for money, and it's just it's it's painful. Yeah, but you're, it like, is. you're watching the last twenty years of Wells's life played out. Right. So let's let's see if we can sort of put it in some kind of context, because the end of Wells's career is really kind of interesting. Are, do you guys know F for Fake? And have I have seen it. I've seen it a long time ago. Right. It was clever. I mean, yeah. it was structurally, it was kind of, you know, uh, he called it a film essay. And, yeah. you know, it's about all kinds of, it's, it's structurally, it's very, pretty radical for 1970, yeah. what, three, four, five. And well, then, he was never one for wanting to make a conventional narrative. That's, I mean, that is the greatness, really, of Citizen Kane. There's no, there's like, no moment in the movie where it's like, eh, that part's the, not the so The transitions no between scenes are brilliant. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Even that. There was yeah. no fat in that movie. No. No. Not at all. It's playing on the big screen over at 2nd Avenue, I think. I know. So we got Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? When? Wednesday. It's, really? Oh, it's be, the, the mm-hmm. 28th. Oh, Michael's off to London. Yes. Very nice. So, um, yeah. Because uh, I, I always like to watch it on a big screen. Yes. and yeah. I, I generally enjoy watching it on a big screen more than I do, even though I have a copy of it, and I actually didn't well, watch it's it. Because you, I just prefer it's, it's because of the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. The use of deep focus, the, the compositions, you pick up a lot more in a big screen. I remember when I, when I took my film class that we, fo- we spent a whole session just on the scene where uh, Thatcher comes to Colorado. And, mm-hmm. you know, the deep focus where you can see clear out the window yeah. through Charlie, you know, fight, refighting the Civil War with his sled. The Union right. forever, right. you know, that, that's, right. and it's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he was not, he didn't invent it. Renoir does it in, um, in uh, Rules, Rules of the, the Game. game. Yeah. yeah. But. Well, Greg Tolan had used the deep focus before, but it was never used never for that like, effect. Right. It was never used as a way, as a means to advance the story. Yes, it, it was. It was just kind of cool. And oh, well, well, it was. Oh, he he used it. It was being used also to to constantly illustrate the themes and and the characterizations. Anything else you could jam in there, they they figured it out. There's there's a moment that always like stuck in my mind. I think it's one of the most brilliant moments in the movie. It's when uh, it's after Susan's opera debut. And Jedediah Leyland, the Joseph Cotton character, is writing the review, and you—he—he's drunk. He falls asleep, and Kane comes to oh, the office, mm-hmm. and and they had that that moment where he, he wakes up. I didn't and, realize and, we were speaking. And Bernstein like lights a cigar for him, and he's like, "Hello, where where's my you know where's my story? What are my reviews? I I need to finish that." It's like it's like Mr. Kane's finishing it. He's he's like, "Oh." 
Charlie's, you know, Charlie's, Charlie's here. Charlie's here. He works. Charlie's here. He goes out there, and you have that shot. He's way, way in the back, and you, and it's, he's, it's, the, it's framed so that uh, Wells is right in the front there, and you see Joseph Cotton way in the back. You know, I didn't know we were talking. Sure, we're talking. You're fine. You're fine. You're but the way it's composed, Beautiful. it emphasizes the dominance. Of the Kane character that he has over the other, but other also people. his isolation, his, his separation. And, yes, from I was going to say yeah. also his his isolation, his his. Well, and that's that's surely his, a theme. His mania. Of, <laughs> yes, and that's surely a theme of uh, of other side of the wind. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's like those those last scenes in uh, in Amberson's, you know, of, of Agnes Moorhead alone in the old old crumbling yeah. house. I mean, it's yeah. like Kane by himself. There, it, it's perfect. Uh, it, it's yeah. just it, the Pauline Kael character says about Jay Hannaford, the Wells character, what he creates, he has to wreck. It's a compulsion, and you know, there's certainly. There may have been people as good with with a visual style as Wells, but no one had quite the flair for self-destruction as Wells. I don't know how much of it was self-destruction as much as there was so much resentment after the contract he got with, well, that Kane, could be. with the studios. And they, they always, whatever movie he made through a studio, they took it away from him. Except Stranger. But even that, he was supposed to have a, a deal with them. Oh yeah, you were saying. And he uh, a four-picture deal with International Picture, making films of his own choosing. And Wells was given some degree of creative control, but they they took it away because they didn't think it was going to make any money because of the subject matter. But it did make money. I mean, the question the question with Wells is always: Is this the classic? The only person in American film who comes close is von Stroheim, of someone who was an artist yeah. who was just absolutely eviscerated by the system. And that could be Wells. Wells could be a victim. Or, on the other hand, no one was ever as quick to jump up and say Wells was a genius as quickly as Wells. True. <laughs> I mean, he had no lack of faith True. in his... I've seen, I've seen an interview with, with Wells where he talk, they talk about <clears throat> Touch of Evil, and, he's, and he says, like... To this day, I still don't understand why they took it away from me. I don't understand. Yeah, no one's ever explained it to me. Well, is that is the story true that that his directing Touch of Evil was sort of accidental? Oh yeah. yes, yeah. yes. He was just originally cast as an actor, right? As Quinlan, and as the show. Heston, I think, was co-producing it, and he just kind of I don't know if the, they, the he original asked, director. Apparently, according to Heston, uh, it was a long-distance phone call, and. Uh, he asked, like, who's who's directing it? And there was said there was like a long pause. And he said, "Well, you have you got Orson, Orson Welles. You have Orson Welles. You know, he's a pretty good director. Why don't you use him?" And there was supposedly there was another long pause, <laughs> and, and he said, "Well, okay, or whatever." And they yeah. contacted Wells, and he rewrote the script. <laughs> but and you know, it to me, as it he always, usually did, it always comes down to the the supreme irony that, of course, Wells got in so much trouble. For for supposedly taking on Hearst in uh, in Citizen Kane, but Citizen Kane is not Hearst's life; it's Wells's life. It's almost as though he could see his own future I know. laid out in front of I him. I know. 
I mean, because Hearst... The, the, the isolation, the, the downfall... You know, the unfinished projects. Xanadu yeah. is, is, is one big unfinished project. And it's yeah. all... It's Don Quixote and Moby Dick and all the other films he tried to make for all those years. Plus the ones that barely got cobbled together, like F for Fake, like yeah. A Mortal Story, like like this one. I mean, and, and from what I understand, Hearst, although, you know, I think Hearst died in the mid-40s or late 40s, uh, and he had lost... He didn't have the influence he did you know, in the 1890s to start the Spanish-American War. But he died happy, wealthy, old, surrounded by loved ones, and it yeah. was it was Wells who died. Apparently, though, for years, Kane was never mentioned in the Hearst paper. I mean, through the yeah. 60s. Yeah, I, yeah. Which I, was ridiculous. I mean, come on. <laughs> right, but of all the people to pick a fight with, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about by self-destruction. And he well, and the studio put Kane in the vault after it had its course in the theaters. They just they kind of buried the movie. Uh, it's 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 so it's so funny because you you, uh, you you look for Hearst in Kane, and instead you find a twenty five year old who can see yeah. all the way. It wasn't all based on Hearst. It was also based. On, I forget the name of this uh, someone, some sort of tycoon that was in Chicago too. Apparently it was his mistress that the Susan character was really based on. Right, but. which is unfortunate because Marion Davies, who is Hearst's mistress, if you've seen some of Marion Davies... And apparently Wells said he thought highly of Marion Yeah, Davies. she was amazing. Mm. She was a brilliant silent actress and sound actress. And you know, a lot of people thought that the characterization of her and Susie was desperately unfair. So it's good to know that he wasn't actually making fun of Marion Davies. That's, yeah. a, that's another name to look up, film fans. So... And as we said, the other side of the wind has at its center the man of mystery, um, which is the heart of Cain, which is the heart of the stranger, which is the heart of Mr. Arkadin, which we haven't mentioned yet, which is how many versions are there of that? Seven, I think. If you buy the Criterion, oh, the Criterion DVD of Mr. Arkadin slash confidential report, I think there are seven different versions of it. So yeah. I saw it at the American Film Institute when I was living in Washington in the 70s and I, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Yeah, no, because it was edited with, as and as John was talking about with this one, you know, money ran out, and, you know, remember, it took him four years to film Othello because he would, you know, <laughs> he would shoot some scenes. Yeah, you make, you do a little bit. It's like, oh, we need some more money. So we'd go okay, act in somebody's go film. acting somewhere or right. try to get some money from someone and let's go shoot a little more recasting things because then people were busy doing other things and couldn't do it I mean no and I think I remember recall reading about Othello that that you know that in one scene someone punches someone else and they fall to the floor and between the punch and the actor falling to the floor there was two years of, <laughs> of separation so I mean but yeah. you know again the, the fundamental question was was it because he was so so far ahead of his time that people just it's it's like you know, it would be like criticizing Van Gogh for not selling a painting or Mozart for not having yeah. enough money for a tombstone. I mean, yeah. was it that he was just, and we're all still catching up with him, or was he a victim of his own arrogance or a combination, you know, of Probably both? a combination. I think I, so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, for for mystery men at the center, there, there is yeah. a quote from Wells that he said, which is I think really interesting as far as the way he would. What film and wanted to do narrative film was that film, film is dead, hmm. and it's up to me to make it more alive. Okay, that's a little arrogant. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and so that's why he was constantly like playing with the narrative structure and trying to do certain things. Because also he came from the theater where every where you never knew. You know, that's one of the beauties of a live performance. You never know what might quite happen. 
Right, but it would, it would be like he the was Beatles. trying to give you a sense of that in film, I guess. Um, he didn't mean film historically was dead. He meant film as a medium. As a medium. Is, 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 you know, once you film it, that's it. It's not going to change anymore. So, and I'd throw into Mystery Men at the Center, the immortal story. Have you guys seen Immortal Story? I have not. It's really kind of meh. That's the, with Jean Laurent. Chimes at Midnight also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, in Chimes at Midnight. Yeah, she's all tear shit. But no, I, I, Immortal Story was on a Turner Classic movie on Jean Moreau Day. And I, I did oh, Jean. When's Anna Karina Day? That's it, what I'm waiting was, for. Uh, it was. They never owned off. I'll I never wa- do that one. I watched. <laughs> And I, I watched it all, and it was a bore. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It's, it's only an hour long, too. It was done for TV. And, and it, it seemed it's, longer. But Wells' character, Clay, mm-hmm. at, who's at the center of it, is also yet another, like Arkadin, like Kane, yeah. another man of mystery, like like Hannifer, the director, here. Why do you think he didn't cast himself? But it, that was dawning on me when I was watching it. Yeah, why, why, did, why, why Houston? Didn't he, why, why Houston? And wait so long. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. Maybe it was too close to the bone. I, I don't... Maybe I, he was too fat. Eh. Well, he was still acting. <laughs> he was still know. doing Paul Masson commercials, John. Well, he you know, was, he still had his I jobs. don't know. I'm just kind of joking. But yeah, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's actually... That's an excellent question. He was the lead in Butterfly with the great Pia Zadora. She won a Golden Globe, which to me legitimized the whole enterprise. That's why he would appear on TV sometimes, you know, for money. Yeah, he did. He did anything. Did for a lot of some... interviews. I have to say, Wells was a very good interviewer. Yes, he was. Always very, very interesting. Yes, interview. there were some things he did that were quite good. I think he's actually quite excellent in the Long Hot Summer. Yeah. Okay. He's good in that. Right? Yeah. And he is good in that. No, the, no. Sometimes apparently he, he and Martin Witt did not get along because he, Martin Witt was directing his scenes. Well, you wanted. Yeah, to I'm talk... sure he tried to put his input yeah. in and try to direct yeah. everything he was in. You want to talk about him as an actor a little bit, Michael? I mean, you know, I, I liked him as Rochester in uh, in Jane Eyre. Yes. I thought he was he's very he was good believable in that. In he's that. very good in Compulsion. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Oh yeah. He's, I love the small part he has in The Man for All Seasons. Yes. Yes. He's quite quite good. In that, but uh, I, I don't think he uh, he really you know just didn't care what he did, and it, it was that's very yeah. sad. Yes, well, it is uh, very sad. It's it's like you know same thing happened again. If we're gonna Hollywood artistic ma- martyrs, you know the only one who even's come close to him, as I said, is Stroheim. And you know look at the masochism involved in Stroheim's part in uh, in uh, Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Boulevard. I mean, yeah. my God. But he but again von Stroheim was he was the one who had the Austrian soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, in dress <laughs> had had in silk underpants, even though no one would see them. And it's it's a it's a fine line. Um, and um, let's, I mean, just other things that came came across to me as, you know, we mentioned a quote before about, you know, you can steal from other directors, just don't steal from yourself. I mean, as we said, Lily Palmer is is Dietrich, is, yeah. is Tanya yes. in in, um, in Touch of Evil, you know, laying off the candy and bars. D- and Dietrich um, said to her dying day that she thought Touch of Evil was the best film that she ever did. Shot, her part was shot in one night. Yeah. Oh, well, she, you know, the ultimate... We were told in the Hitchcock episode, we were saying when you were talking about stage fright, Mm -hmm. that, you know, the only person Hitchcock ever let Mm -hmm. do her own lighting and and makeup, you know, Mm -hmm. he just stepped back. Supposedly, the the studio didn't know Dietrich was in it at all until they started seeing the rushes and they contact her and supposedly she's... They they were like, because they were concerned about the budget, like, are you getting paid for this? Like, it's like, well... If you don't put my name in the credits, just pay me whatever the scale is. If you do, then talk to my manager. <laughs> I'm still though, wondering. How do you how, like her now, Ducky? How did Jaja Gabor get that credit for literally 
15 seconds worth yeah. of work. Yeah, I know. I never understood that. My only guess is that she had another scene or something and it was cut. You think? Possible. I don't, yeah, maybe. And there's, you know, and there's Mercedes McCambridge, speaking of uh, Touch of Evil turning up as the yeah, edit, as the right. film editor in yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Other Side of the Wind, yeah. along yeah. with, which was lovely, was, it, it's it's actually a, a Kane reference that it was Paul Stewart yes. playing yes. his manager, yes. you know, who and someone just comes this short of saying he knows where all the bodies are going. Yes. Yes. <laughs> just like this far away. Yeah. You're like sentimental, aren't you? <laughs> Yes and no. <laughs> but it was nice to see Paul Stewart again without the accent. Um, he was a good actor. He was. He worked a lot. Actually, I know. Small oh, yeah. yeah. No, he, oh, he was, worked he never all stopped. the time. Well, a lot of the, the Mercury players did. I mean, you know, even although she ended up in, in Bewitched, Agnes Moorhead. Yeah, but she's great in Bewitched. Yeah. I think Bewitched is her best performance. <laughs> she's great in Bewitched. I'm sorry. I lo- even, in, even in our truncated Ambersons, I think she's amazing she's, I, I agree with in you. that she's movie. Very, I very love she her. Got the New York film she's my favorite that. player in that film. And I don't even mind Tim Holt in that film. I do. Well, That's my problem with yeah. Magnificent Ambersons is Tim Holt. But Georgie's supposed to be I know, callow and he, arrogant. He, but and, he's yeah. beyond. And, and he's, Liked him in Sierra Madre. Which is, yeah, and I got a feeling Houston had to really work with him. Probably, yeah, probably got him drunk. Maybe. <laughs> Just reminds me of, uh, of, did you guys see Hail Caesar? Of, yes, the, yes. of the Cohen of Ray Fiennes yes. working with the cowboy actor? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, what did it so? Now, why are you saying it that way? Say it like I'm saying, what did it so? Lovely. So, um, and the Baron, the character who's sort of the, I thought was maybe supposed to be Houseman. Because I'm not, I'm not exactly Probably. sure what Houseman did for Wells. Well, Houseman uh, was involved with the, the Mercury, Mercury Theater. Theater. Yes, it but in his film career, nothing. I don't think anything. Because Houseman, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was it was mainly with the Mercury Theater. Because that you know that work. Getting back to the Shakespeare, I mean that, that the fact that Wells uh, the Theater Mercury were, Theater, and I don't I don't know. I mean, was Houseman wasn't wasn't Houseman producer for some of the plays that. I think for the for the Voodoo mm-hmm. Macbeth and for which is from thirty seven and the, the the anti-fascist Julius Caesar. I mean, yeah. Yeah. think about I what they. I would love to have seen. Can you imagine that, that or yeah. seeing Cradle Will Rock when the actors were out in the audience because of the union? Yeah. I mean, my God, what what and all before he was twenty five years old. Yeah. Just incredible. Um, yeah. I thought you know having the main the, the 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 pretty actor you know be a deckhand on the boat was kind of reminded me of. Uh, Wells' character in Lady from Shanghai. Yes. Without yes. the really bad Irish accent that Wells yeah. uses. Well, I don't know why he chose to do the Irish accent. I don't it's, know. It's so badly. And, but and why did know. he choose to do have it, everyone talk in Scottish accents in Macbeth, where yeah. the sound was so bad anyway that yeah. you couldn't hear what the hell they were saying? Yeah. And it's like, stars hate your fighters. But Lady from Shanghai is <laughs> another movie that was it was taken away from. Well, I mean, Lady from Shanghai is a bloody mess. I mean, yeah. but, all, but I, Wells thought so too. Yeah. In fact, I've seen the interview that he did with Dick Cavett, and they open with the scene, you know, the famous scene with the, yeah, mirrors. the mirrors. And and Cavett asks him something like, you know, how do you feel about it? And he said, I can't watch it. I can see everything wrong with it and reminded of the movie. And it was, he, it was, it was painful for him to see. But there were people who were able to work within the system and create great films. Yes, yes. You know, but it's also because he he didn't want to do conventional narratives, and yeah. sometimes he would put a rough cut together, and they wouldn't understand it and think, "Oh, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing" or whatever, and that wasn't true. Right, and and 
you know, again, fractured narrative, you know, then when the French New Waivers yeah. got to it, you know, they, yeah. you know, they made it cool. But Wells was, you know, too far gone at that point. And I thought that the character of Billy, you know, his sort of henchman reminded me of uh, Joseph Kalea's character from... Uh, Touch of um, from Touch of Your Peter yes. yeah, yes. sort of just the loyal yeah. to mm-hmm. to yeah. a point, you know, yeah. follower, yeah. Um, which is a great character in Touch of yeah. Evil. Oh yeah, it, it was sad. It was sad, and it, you know, the, the the making fun of Antonioni and the other directors like that, as I said, says more about Wells, I think, than it does about it. It, it felt like it felt like Eyes Wide Shut. Because when Eyes Wide Shut came out, and Kubrick had a lot more, you know, only died three weeks, before, not 42 years before it came out. Yeah. But Eyes Wide Shut felt like that if it had come out in, you know, the 70s when he first thought about it after Clockwork, it would have been a pretty radical film. Yeah. I still but liked it. I'm one of the you're gonna, you're gonna stand alone on that See? one because I I'm uh, in between on Eyes Wide Shut. I didn't think it was a great because there are a few people who thought it was a great movie. There are other people who thought it was a disaster. I'm sort of in between. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was possibly along with AI the most uh, dis- single most disappointing movie going experience of my life. Oh, wow! Because you know we'd waited twelve oh, years disappointing yeah since Full Metal Jacket that's... and that's what we got. We got, you know, something, you know, it felt like a dirty old man, ooh, let's film an orgy. Yeah. And in fact, like, well, it's the like, orgy yeah. scene is a mess. Right. No, it, and, if, and, and, and Wells opens, or whoever put this film together, uh, Other Side of the Wind, remember, opens with just the women sitting around in the steam room and it's bare yeah. breast and it's like yeah. completely gratuitous. And you're like, okay, yeah. why are we doing this? And but, to, but to date, I think uh, Eyes Wide Shut has the best performance Nicole Kidman's ever given. I think she's marvelous. She's very good. Brilliant in that. She's really, really very good. And movie. I haven't seen her better in anything, including the hours. Yeah, no, I, well, really better than Moulin Rouge? Huh. Okay, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um... I don't know. It just, it just, it, and as I said at the end, you know, when they end up moving the screening to the drive-in and everyone drives away, oh, it's yeah. like the audience has yeah. left, yeah. and it's a little, a little heavy-handed, but I think it's great. And then you get, you know, the suicide, or we don't know when Bogdanovich does the opening narration. You know, he says we don't know if it was an accident. You know, hinting that it might have been suicide, which reminds us of, you know. That's how Arkadin ends, you know, with a sort of a, 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 a semi-faked suicide. Well, the mystery of, of the beginning of Cain. Yeah. Rosebud. Right. And I don't know. I, it just, I really wanted to like it. Yeah. I well, know. I did. know. Yeah. Yeah. Just yes. because of the history behind it and yeah. all the all the energy and the, the creative people, you know, were doing to, to bring it to life. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that's why it got such good reviews, because I think the critics just admired all the people who, you know. No, and I appreciate, you know, I, I, I was ragging on Oya Kodar. I mean, she, she was, she has proved to be a good keeper of his flame. Yes. And, um, and, you know, a lot of the credit for getting this film put together is due to her and Bogdanovich, and too. And Netflix. Yes. Yep, and, and Netflix. Netflix. So Gotta give him credit. We have to, <laughs> although now with Filmstruck dead, I don't know. Uh, but isn't something? Coming yes, there's a Criterion to... Channel coming. Right, yeah. But what about all the Turner Classic films? Where are we going to see those? I ask you. So yes, but I'm so trying. Netflix <laughs> is really making an effort to, and they had the. Doc, did you guys watch the documentary? I, I watched seen part it. of it. Uh, it was interesting-ish. Yeah. Uh, they love me when I'm dead. So you know, if you're going to watch. 
Other Side of the Wind. Definitely watch that in, uh, watch the documentary as a companion piece to see how it was. I remember, isn't there a compilation out there somewhere of scenes from the things he never completed? I remember seeing that at Film Forum, of like scenes from Moby Dick, scenes from Don Quixote, scenes from... I don't remember. From the various different things that he never got around Don to. Don Quixote was basically sort of a home movie project, wasn't it? I don't know. Kill Terry Gilliam's career, too, so there you go. <laughs> so maybe it's just unfilmable. But, you know... Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's the other th- aspect, too, of Wells. He was sort of a dabbler, experimenter, a mad scientist kind of type at times. You know, I mean, he, he would sometimes do things, I think, not always thinking, oh, this is going to be a big... Massive movie released in all the theaters. Right, I'm just going to film some scenes with yeah. some friends. Yeah, yeah. no, I, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I love that about him. I love the fact that, you know, whatever whether you, whatever side you fall on the Wells debate, you know, Vic, you know, Hollywood martyr, what happens when art uh, comes head-to-head with commerce, or just arrogant ass who, you know, uh, precipitated his own downfall, or somewhere in between. I mean, there are... There are m- a couple of Wells films that are not worth seeing, and the others are just fundamental documents of film. I mean, if you're a filmmaker or a fan, that you you have to see, even in their their you know their cut forms. But from from your teaching, most younger people don't like Citizen Kane. Hey, like her, which yeah. I don't understand. I still I think I brought this up on a previous episode. I still don't understand how anyone can hate. Citizen, and that's partly because of the the narrative structure. Mm-hmm. No right. matter how many times you, because with the traditional narrative structure, when you see a movie several times, it starts, it just starts to get wear on you, even though it might be a great movie. Because oh, I know what happens. That's kind of thing. With Kane, you never feel that way. It always feels surprising and fresh. And there's, and given that it is a you know the weight of the great movie and it's a drama, there's a lot of humor. In it. Oh my god! I, I, yes. I think, and John, and that's it's a... so much fun to just watch. That's a really critical point, is that, you know, how can you show something that everyone, until the last sight and sound poll, which put Vertigo above it, everyone has said, oh, this is the greatest film ever made. How yeah. could you not be disappointed by that? True, true. And, yes. you know, and plus the kids, you know, for us, see, even at our age, 50s and 60s, seeing that narrative structure that you're talking about, John, was so radical. It's like, wow, you can do yes. a film like that? Yes. Whereas everything these kids see has fractured narratives. Yes. They're so used to it now, they're like, so what's the... Yeah, and it's because of Kane that did that. Right. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking that none Which of Which is why you didn't start to start to see some of that until much later, because Kane was buried for so long, and it wasn't until... 56, I got another theater run and started showing up in, on TV. People started revisiting it and reevaluating it. And all of a sudden, yep, and it, it's, it's just, there's so much good stuff there. But, you know, tying it back to the other side of the wind, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention that quote again, that it, that it seems like a, a cardboard tombstone. Is a is a really good, mm, good way to phrase yeah. it for for a career that is unique. Uh, David Thompson, who is actually my favorite writer on film, um, said that it is the greatest and the most instructive of all American film director careers. So, any any last thoughts on Wells? Any uh, any other things you'd want to throw in for the folks for the folks at home? I, 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 I'll, 
repeat a sweet story. About we could use a sweet story. Um, this is a depressing episode. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, and this is, once again, I read this in this article about the v, making of the VIPs. Um, Margaret Rutherford, who um, won the Oscar for that film, she had never met Wells before. And she talked, and she, this was something, a, a stickler with her. She always wanted to do Shakespeare. And she was not a happy woman in her life because she you know was always cast in comedies right and yeah. she was Mistress Quickly in uh, yes, Chimes yeah that's where they met and he gave her that part uh-huh. and it was one of the last things she ever did one of her last films no and, it, and she it, was already way in her 70s by then well seems like a genuinely generous soul I mean he is yes mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I would agree um I, I just just no, I, there's a reason why Lindley Dietrich loved him yeah. Yeah. But one thing that we didn't didn't she once say everyone you should, should cross je- yourself yeah, whenever you, should, you say yeah. his name. Yeah. 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 We were saying you said that about uh, Saul Bass when we were doing movie yeah, openings, well, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> which, is, I, which is true, by the I way. I still agree. With yeah. That no, but well, if, the people out there listening, if you haven't seen some of these movies, if you're not familiar, then you have to see. Citizen Kane, don't be afraid of it. It's and, a fun right. movie. It is. Yes. It, it's there is a man. A certain you should man. see Magnificent Ambersons <laughs> because it's basically half of a truly great, brilliant yeah, movie. And you can, and you, maybe, maybe more than half. Yeah. Right. And you can see where Touch it would have of gone, Evil, no doubt. Yes. And see. And chimes at midnight. And, and I'm going to throw in Othello. I think Othello, you know, his Othello doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to do with Shakespeare. It has a lot more to do with Wells. You begin to see a pattern here. But I love his Othello, especially considering the conditions under which it was made. It's extraordinary. I, I I really like it. It's so much better than the Olivier, which is which I've never seen. Oh my God! Oh. Whoa! It's Olivier doing it's the minstrel show. It's minstrel. It is. See, I know people actors who love Desdemona. <laughs> Black actors. God, I've known. no! I, like that I would rather watch the Kenneth Branagh Lawrence Fishburne one, which is atrocious. It's but not yeah. Bad. Well, uh, I, I should add it though when you said Touch of Evil. It's important not to see the cut version, right? right. Touch of Evil, right. which unfortunately was my first. Uh, uh, does the cut encounter. version show anywhere anymore? I, I hope not. I really hope they've gotten. Right. I think pretty much whenever they show it, I know Turner Classics will only show the uh, restored version. Yeah, and the restored version is by far the best. And I oh, think, yeah. as a curiosity, just in terms of structure and style, I think F for Fake is worth worth looking at too. I mean, Criterion saw fit to put it out on uh, on, on one of their discs, which is a bit of an honor. And I I think it's a really it's a nice insight into Wells as you know the trickster as the magician. As as the master of illusion, because right. that's all film is, and um, it it's it's not the most pleasant sit through, but there's no other film. In fact, the only you know, it's it's kind of like um, exit through the gift shop, because you're not sure whether you're watching a documentary or a fiction film or a combination thereof. Well, that it's is neat. that is sort of the the style of uh, the other side of the wind is sort of like a yes docudrama kind of thing. Uh, I'm like, trying to think of a career too where the the backstory of the movies. How they were made, what happened, is this, is this interesting as, no, as well? As... I, I don't think there is one. It's a unique <laughs> career. And um, I would throw in the, the last 15 minutes, what, of Lady Lady from Shanghai? Oh, oh, yeah. oh definitely. Absolutely. I mean, definitely. 
as a standalone piece, I can tell you that my film students, my high school film students who didn't like Kane, were their jaws were dropping at the at the Hall of Mirrors sequence, that oh, whole sequence yeah. in in Lady yeah. from Shanghai. So, yeah, it's brilliant. But you can imagine audiences sitting there in 1948, watching this and going, "What? Yeah. This guy's out of his mind." So you know, ahead of his time, arrogant genius. Neither, both. That's always going to be the mystery of Orson Welles. And um, <clears throat> one last thought about the film is that a couple of reviews I read talked about the sexuality in the film. You know, so the for scene, th- the scene in the taxi. Yeah, and the, this no, 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 no. The um, the sort of the, the film within a film. <laughs> the the uh, like, for example, Bogdanovich tells a story about Hannaford about how he lived with. Um, his first star, and they would, every Saturday, they would strip to the waist and box, you know, and it, there's a real kind of homoeroticism. And I was oh, yes. wondering if you guys had, yeah. had ever heard about that or... No. No. I don't think I... Think he, I think it may have been a theme he may have been interested in or whatever. I don't think that uh, it was something that was part of his life. I mean, it's it, it sort of, I mean, you could, you, it's... It, it's one explanation for the Leland Kane relationship. I mean, which is never really and also well, yeah, well, yeah, uh, that that is true. I mean, why does Leland so like want to be with him all I the guess time? And the what you nowadays call why a stooge. Is he, <laughs> and why is he so upset by the fact when he calls him a stuffed shirt? Yep. Remember that that part when the the party. Yep. Am I a stuff? I am shirt? not overdressed. Yeah. <laughs> also, also the Hank Quinlan um, sergeant Pete uh, Menzies. Yes. Yep. Menzies. Yes. Right. Definitely. Absolutely. And also Definitely. the the Othello Iago. Uh, and in both cases, their heart is broken. Yeah. Jedediah Lane has his heart broken by yep. by Kane and the the character in Touch of Evil. It's just, I've never I've never broken. really explored that. I mean, his private life really doesn't interest me. But just as a theme in his films, I wonder if that's that's another yet another angle to look at with Wells. There are, there are so many. It is the Hall of Mirrors. His life, his yeah. career is either I don't know what's a better metaphor. The Xanadu, you know, collapsing and crumbling around him with all the statues still in boxes and the unfinished place that will never be finished or yeah but he but what well still had friends and everything and was yes. getting out and doing things and seeing people as in Kane he was became completely alienated but you wish that he had been able to have an end of career that was more like Houston's where he yes. yes. to hold it together and, have been great. right yeah and so that's really what you walk away with from but Houston always finished his you know he right. generally finished his films he usually did it for the money but again, again I have to stress that that, that Wells did finish his movies. It was the studio who would see that they would see what he was doing, whatever, and they'd take it away from. It wasn't until later when he just couldn't get backing for the for movies that he True. wanted to do, and yeah. he had to make those films on shoestring budgets and shoot a little here and shoot a little there, and then try to raise some more money. And he had this constant like sporadic filming, like well, we have to shut down for two years, and then let's like start up again. Maybe you have to recast this scene now. I, so I just found it interesting that Wells and Houston were so close because they're such, they seem to me such different spirits, you know, because yeah. Houston's, you know, such a man's man, such a Howard right. Hawks kind of let's just tell the story and get her done. And, you know, you don't see too many obvious flashes of art in, uh, in Houston. And I don't say that as a negative. I oh, say that as he was a, 
don't no. know. I, I, I'm a big fan of Houston. Though. I am too. No, I'm saying it's a compliment. And I, well, I got to tell you, for Houston, I saw The Man Who Would Be King when I was 10, when he came out in 75, and I thought, I still think it's one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. I was so transported. I mean, now with the cultural stuff, it's... Right. And the imperialism, and, it's yeah. a little hard to watch, but my God, to yeah. a 10-year-old, I was completely yeah. in that world. Oh, yeah. And he's and, one of the only film directors who I think actually improved a Tennessee Williams play mm. with the Night of the Night Iguana. Night Iguana. It's so much yeah. better than the play. Yeah, and the play is. is considered one of it his is. better, his last good it play, is. but I think the movie is, the, the changes Houston made are just... Well, they're so also stylistically just so different. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, and so what... Wells we'll, is a better actor, though. Yes. And so <laughs> what we're... Well, Houston was always the same. Yes, whatever pretty acted. much. You yeah. know, but here's someone, as I said, who saw himself as Falstaff when he was 24. I know. I mean, you could he, he could sense the decay and the rot that was coming. So, um, you know, it, it, we talked about how, including The Other Side of the Wind, you know, so many of Wells' films sent around uh, A Man of Mystery. We'll even throw in The Third Man, although it's not his film. You guys said that... that that uh, he directed Suppose his scenes? I've always read uh, several sources that Wells directed the scenes he was in. And boy, it sure looks like it. Cause, it does you know, look like well, it. See, I think it's a good movie. Oh, my God. I mean, look, Carol Reed is a terrific director. There's no uh-huh. art. But, but there's that moment where, where Holly first sees you know, the cat and the shadow. And that just feels like such a Wells moment as opposed to a Carol Reed moment. Um, so, again, Other Side of the Wind... Uh, we th- we don't agree with the critics generally. Uh, I think the three of us agree that it was pretty awful. But again, if you're interested in that career and you want to be a completist, and um, you know, Oya Kodar does have a lovely figure. I mean, <laughs> for what it's worth. And uh, and there you go. So and that's and that's the other side of the windbags. Um, we are our next episode, our December episode. We're going to do a first of what I hope is many. Um, one of my favorite film writers of the '80s and '90s is a guy named Danny Peary, um, and he wrote a book that is now long out of print, but it's one of my favorites called Alternative Oscars, where or alternate Oscars, excuse me, where he goes through every year from '28 through I think when he wrote it, which was '85, '86, and offers up his choices for what should have won the major categories that year. If you've been listening to us, you know that Michael is an Oscars freak and he can tell you who won everything every year. Yes, you can. Not anymore. No. (laughs) I can't remember what won last year. Well, uh, Shape of Water. That's why I can't remember. (laughs) Ryan, I kind of like it. Shape of Water is a good movie. It's It's a good movie. It's no La La Land, but... (laughs) It's no Phantom Thread. (laughs) Don't worry, guys. Phantom Thread would never. If Beale Street Could Talk is coming, Barry Jenkins is going to. Saw it. Oh, how was it? It's very good. Yes, yes. Oh, that's such good news. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Saw I can't it wait. Saw side screening. It was. It was. I think I liked it a little better than uh, Moonlight. In fact, I liked it a lot better. Um, I, and you know, the, we're going to talk adventure when we when we do our year best of, which will be in January. We're going to, you know, you can't get around that. You know, we we used to be happy if Spike Lee and John Singleton did a film in the same year. Now you've got you know ten really good to great films made by African American mm-hmm. directors, and so hopefully this marks a real change. But, but Real Street could talk was very very moving. Wait, because I love Baldwin and I and I like yeah. Barry Jenkins, and we're going to talk about our all favorite alternative Oscars for the eighties.
all right, the, in the six major categories of actor, actress, supporting, supporting, film, and director, of who should have won instead of who actually won. Rain Man, this means you, Roger oh, Rabbit. God. So, yes, exactly. Good Lord. All right, 12 minutes to Wapner. We got to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, again, uh, check, out, uh, check out The Other Side of the Wind and um, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, the documentary about it. Also, check out the, the Coen Brothers film on Netflix. And I can't wait to see the, uh, the Quaron, even if it is on a small screen. Um, and we are out. Um, always remember that uh, Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. Easy money, that was. Um, produced by Melissa Cabot. Uh, we got to thank Mama Sue for the space, uh, the use of the hall, as they, who said, Thompson says that in came And um, uh, Gabby for doing our logo. Please check out our website, www.vintagesand.com. Uh, leave us your feedback, suggestions for topics, um, and we'd love to know what you think. And just, we're gonna, uh, there's, a, there's my favorite, one of my favorite Coen Brothers lines kind of sums up Orson Welles for me. It's the line in Serious Man where um, the Korean student's father is, is trying to sort of blackmail him but not blackmail him. And, he, and Larry said, how can you blackmail me and not blackmail me? And he just stands there for a second and says, accept the mystery. So that's what we're going to do with Wells. We're going to love every every minute we can get our hands on and just accept the mystery of who he was. You know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of American directors. Bye, everybody. See you next time.